So please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. We've been mostly in the Gospel of Luke. Today we're, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 through 25. Matthew 1, 18 through 25. We are continuing the series of sermons about angels speaking to people and, and bringing this good news of great joy about the birth of Jesus. Two weeks ago, Pastor Josh helped us consider Zechariah's conversation with the angel Gabriel regarding the birth of John the Baptist who was to prepare the way for Jesus. Last week we'll look at Mary's conversation with the same angel, same Gabriel, regarding the birth of Jesus. And by the way, all the sermons are available online. You can go on our website and all the audio files are there. Also, if you're on the city and if you're part of the church, you should be on the city. It's sort of the social network of the church. All the uh, PDFs are there as well if you need to reference a quote or a scripture reference. So today, we're looking at Joseph's dream in which an angel tells him about Mary's supernatural pregnancy. So please follow as I read Matthew 1, 18-25. That's on page 807 of the Black Pew Bible. If you don't have a Bible of your own, please take one from the pews and use it at home. We would love for you to have one at your house as our gift to you. Matthew 1.18 Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. This is God's word. Now, if you read different accounts of Jesus' birth, they're written from different perspectives. So, for example, Luke speaks from the perspective of Mary. He kind of looks at the birth of Jesus through Mary's eyes. John, of course, has a more theological understanding, and he speaks from God's perspective of what was happening in Jesus' birth. But when we come to Matthew, it is clear that his perspective is that of Joseph, the father. I'd like to maintain this approach throughout the sermon this morning. I want us to look at what's happening from Joseph's perspective. Now, we don't know a whole lot about Joseph, but based on what we know, there's one word that seems to describe him well, at least to me, and that word is reasonable. He was a reasonable man. He was a reasonable man. He was a carpenter by trade, And he seemed to live in very much the same way. Measured judgments, commitment to God's law, precise fulfillment of requirements, structured life. He is a reasonable 
man. I like to think that if he lived today in our community, he probably would work as an engineer at Boeing. <laughs> That's how I see Joseph. Maybe I'm right, maybe I'm wrong, but he seems to be a reasonable man. Now, what our text shows us today is that this reasonable man has to deal with a totally unexpected, life-changing event. And we're going to look at how Joseph responds to his fiancée's surprising pregnancy and how that news, that event, reveals the cracks in his worldview and it changes his idea of what life should be. And then the angel speaks and this message, this reassurance, this explanation from God himself gives him a much better and more complete understanding of reality and defines his life from then on. So this reasonable man responds in faith, in obedience to the angel's message, but in the process, his whole perspective on life changes. So here's my outline for this morning. I only have two headings. Is that disappointing to you, only two, two headings? There are lots of subpoints, so don't worry. Number one, let's look at when life doesn't make sense anymore. Let's look at a time when life does not make sense anymore. And secondly, let's look at how we can make sense of life through the gospel. So first, we want to identify with that initial response to the news of Mary's pregnancy. And then we want to interact with the message from the angel and see how the gospel can transform our understanding of life. Okay. I'd like us to get a better feel for what this experience must have been like for Joseph. I think that we can all identify with him to a certain degree. Mary's surprise pregnancy challenges how Joseph sees life. And it reveals how his worldview, his understanding of reality is really incomplete and it has significant cracks. So there are three cracks, three gaps that are exposed through his experience with hearing the news that Mary is with child. And life suddenly doesn't make sense anymore to this reasonable man. So these are the three gaps, three cracks that are revealed. Number one, the gap between expectations and experience. The gap or crack between expectations and experience. Now, try to get into Joseph's mindset. He is living exactly as he is supposed to be living. He's working a job. He is engaged to be married. He's looking forward to starting a family. He is a just man, meaning a righteous man, taking God's law seriously, living according to God's commandments. Uh, we will learn later that he is a good citizen who pays taxes and participates in government programs like the census. Joseph takes life seriously. He is responsible. He is reliable. He is doing what he's supposed to be doing, and he knows what life is supposed to be like. He's pursuing specific goals in life. He is the kind of person that we would describe as someone who has it all together. He's got it figured out. He has it together. He knows what he's doing. Now, for many of us, especially those who grew up in church went through Sunday school and youth group and put our children in church and Sunday school and youth group, the assumption is that if we do things right, like Joseph, 
if we make good decisions, if we follow the rules, if we plan well, our lives will be good and we can expect God's blessings. That's the assumption. That is what is taught in many churches, in many youth groups, in many small groups, in many Sunday school classes. It is not what's taught here, by the way, and we'll get to that. But it is taught in many Christian churches. This is the default expectation. If I do things right, if I follow the rules, if I keep my commitments, then God will bless me and I will have a good life. But does it match our experience of life? Those are expectations and they're often reinforced at church and in school, but is that the reality that we face? Now look at Joseph. He is betrothed to a nice girl. He's going through the process of marrying her. He's doing things right. And by the way, this I need to explain how the Jewish betrothal worked. Parents would typically arrange the marriage. And the couple would be betrothed for at least a year. And during that year, the husband would prepare the house and work to save money so he could provide for his wife and his future children. During that year or longer, they would be considered officially married, except that they weren't totally married. But, for example, if the husband died during the betrothal period, the woman would be considered his widow legally, uh, and she would legally be able to inherit his property. So this is much more than our idea of engagement. This is a, a serious thing, and if somebody wanted to break that betrothal, they would have to go through the same procedure as you would if you were divorcing your wife or your husband. It would have to be established that there's a reason for it. There have to be witnesses. The whole village and the elders would likely need to be involved. And so this is a serious thing. Betrothal was very much like marriage, except that the couple was waiting to consummate their relationship until their wedding night. Now, this is what we often hear. So he was, he's doing everything right. He's following the steps. He's following the traditions. He's obeying the law. And this is what we often hear. If you do that, then you would have a great marriage. In other words, if you keep sexually pure before marriage, then your sexual relationship in marriage is going to be awesome. That is taught in churches and in youth groups. If you make good decisions, then your life would be great. If you get good education, you will have a great job. If you make good decisions, then your life will be well organized and structured. If you raise your children God's way, then all of them will turn out great. Now these are things that are actually said in Christian churches and in Christian youth groups. So find a godly person to marry. Way to have sex until marriage, go to school, work hard, go to church, and God would bless you with a fulfilling, problem-free marriage, nice Christian children, and financially secure future. Joseph, by the way, is doing all of that. He is living exactly as he is supposed to be living. And then suddenly, he finds out that Mary is pregnant. And his whole world is turned upside down. Now she's probably four months pregnant at this point, having already gone to see her cousin Elizabeth. 
Joseph knows he is not the father. Remember, he did things right. He is not the father. And all of a sudden, his neat life plan falls completely apart. One minute, he thought he knew exactly how his life was going to go. After all, he did things well and right. And the next minute, he has no idea what to do. What's going to happen to his reputation? Will his business suffer? Will he even have a family? What will happen to Mary? Who is the father? Why would Mary betray him? All these questions are running through his head. Joseph's life doesn't make sense anymore. It's spinning out of control. It's fallen apart. And it is all happening in spite of his good decisions, his obedience to God's law, and his careful planning. I wonder how many of us can identify with what Joseph is feeling when he discovers that Mary is pregnant. Let me ask you this. Has your life gone exactly as you expected? No amens here, right? (laughs) Has it gone exactly as it was promised to you? You see, many good Christians have difficult marriages or even marriages that end in divorce, even those Christians who did things right. Many good Christians experience life-altering illnesses, both physical and mental. Many good Christians can't get a good job even though they did well in a good college. Many good Christians watch their children walk away from the Lord even though they raise them in the faith, at church, having family devotions around the dinner table. So what do we do when life doesn't make sense, when our experience does not match our expectations? Have you had an experience that destroyed your expectations and exposed life for what it actually is? One writer, Jen Pollock-Michelle, in her book, Teach Us to Want, recounts her experience. That's when that truth hit her, and we can all identify with an experience like that, maybe not to the degree and not specifically that experience, that disillusions us of our expectations. This is what she says. As I discovered in March of my freshman year of college, life has the unspeakable, inauspicious capability of driving like a reckless drunk. It careens off course, leaving no time to respond or react, no moment of clarity and courage for bracing against the impact. My father was dead. I was 18, and only two days earlier, he had celebrated his 49th birthday. By all appearances, he was a healthy man. Something like that happens, and it utterly destroys your expectations of life. Because we all had envisioned our life going a certain way. And then life shows itself for what it is. Now, Joseph's experience is very different from this writer's experience, and very different from your experience. The degree may vary, but all of us come to a point where we say, this is not what I thought it was going to be. 
That's not what I expected, and that is not what I was promised. Jen Pollock Michelle goes on to say, Each of us is moved in the unpredictable currents of today. An existence can feel as weightless as an amputated branch dislodged in a storm. We spin, catch, break free, drown, and surface, all the while driven by the fickless, ficklessness. That's right. I'm sorry. The dramatic effect is gone when you stumble over a word. <laughs> all the while driven by the ficklessness of time's wind and weather. Whatever awaits us tomorrow, it is quite possibly not a scene we have expected, nor an act for which we have prepared. That's reality. Joseph experiences it on his level. And by the way, it does turn out that Mary did not sin and there's no adultery, right? But, by the way, his life is totally turned upside down. As you read the account of what happens with Joseph, he ends up having to run away, go to Egypt, and all these things happen to him because of how life is. So one of the cracks, one of the gaps that is exposed in his worldview is this gap between his experience and his expectations. The second one is the gap between us and God. The gap between us and God. This is a legitimate question for Joseph to ask. Where is God here? Where is God? Joseph has obeyed the law as much as humanly possible. He kept the rules. He did what he was supposed to. And yet, everything is now falling apart. Where are God's blessings? Listen to Jen Pollock Michelle again. She says, Where is God when life goes sideways? When you sit down to dinner and life as you know it ends? Has God, as we have sometimes imagined Him, stood idly by, preoccupied with the more pressing affairs of the universe? How do we say that God is good when life is not? And what, if anything, can be made of the prayers we've whispered in the middle of nights? restless with fear and the threat of loss, prayers that have, have had no apparent answer, no just-in-the-nick-of-time rescue. Now, have you asked those questions? Perhaps at a funeral of a loved one or sitting beside your child on a hospital bed or packing up your belongings as you move out of a foreclosed house or when a marriage has ended in betrayal or when you hear a doctor say there's nothing else to be done, or when yet another miscarriage happens, it is totally appropriate to ask the question, where is God? How can God be good when life is not? What is he doing? Why is he not answering my prayers? I'm sure those are some of the questions that Joseph is asking. And so that crack between God and him, between us and God, is revealed. This crack in the worldview is exposed. And finally, the last gap, the last crack, is between law and grace. So there's a crack between experience and expectation. There's a crack between God and us. And finally, there's the crack between law and grace. Look at verse 19. Her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Joseph is caught in between what the law demands and his desire to protect Mary. 
Now, the law required ordinarily that Mary would be publicly shamed, maybe even put to death for her adultery, even though they didn't practice that, but the law demanded that an adulteress would be put to death. But at least there was a public shaming. At least the whole village was typically involved, and the elders of the village were involved. Instead, Joseph decides to divorce Mary quietly with probably just two or three witnesses. Now, if he did that, this is what he wants to do. He wants to do it quietly. He would suffer financial loss because his gifts to Mary's family would not be returned. His reputation would be questioned. If he had nothing to hide, why did he not divorce Mary publicly? This was not an easy decision for him. He knew that he loved Mary still, and he didn't want her to suffer, and yet he knew what the law demanded. Now, the next verse says that he considered these things. Remember, he's a reasonable, sensible man. And so he keeps thinking about it. He keeps looking for a solution that would protect Mary and bring forgiveness and hope into her life. As far as he knows, she has committed adultery and yet maintain the law of God. I wonder how many of us can identify with this dilemma. I'm going to give you a very particular example, but I think this applies in many other circumstances. If you have ever dealt with a family member who has a serious addiction, you know exactly what this feels like. Refusing to give money to someone with an addiction, maybe your child, your cousin, your brother, your sister. It's right because you don't want to enable a bad habit. But it doesn't feel right. It feels like you're abandoning them and failing them. Telling your child they cannot stay in your house because that would just enable them to pursue their addiction and remove some of the natural consequences of their choices. We can explain that as tough love, right? You've heard that phrase, and we've applied that. But it doesn't feel like loving, does it? It feels like hurting. And so you're wrestling, you're caught between law and grace. You want what's right, and sometimes you know what's right, and you know what consequences are required, what punishment needs to be meted out sometimes. And yet, because you love the person, you don't want the person to suffer. And so many of us are caught between law and grace. Now, some of us have been taught that we can make sense of life by living by the law. If we just do things right, if we just follow God's rules to the letter, if we do things exactly the way God expects us to do, things will be fine. And most of us eventually figure out that it is not as cut and dry as we were taught. There are a lot of gray area where you don't know whether law or grace is better. And so we struggle to learn how to respond to situations that seem to call for both law and grace, and we don't know where that balance is. Now this is Joseph. This is what he's dealing with. His world is turned upside down. His life has fallen apart. It's all spinning out of control. And because his worldview is not equipped to handle something like this, It's cracking under pressure, and these cracks are exposed. He doesn't know how to bring experience and expectations together. He doesn't know how to bring God and people together, and he doesn't know how to bring law and grace together. 
That's where he's at. I wanted to spend time on this so we would identify with what he's feeling. Because I bet all of us can identify with this. We've all experienced times when life has fallen apart and you're trying to figure out whether your worldview, your understanding of reality can hold. And sometimes you figure out that it doesn't hold. That we can't control it. That we can't keep it together. And by the way, people who are brought up in a certain way in our kinds of churches, in our kinds of youth groups, that were taught that if you do things right, things will turn out right, this is the point when they lose their faith. Because their worldview falls apart. Experience doesn't match their expectations. Law doesn't seem to work with grace anymore. And God doesn't seem to be anywhere close to them. I would say that a lot of people that were brought up in church under this kind of worldview left the church and left the faith when something like this happened to them and they were forced to deal with what they actually believed and if it actually was able to, 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 to stay intact under pressure. And so for many people, they leave. They can't handle it. Now this is what's happening with Joseph. And we see God's grace in this because God explains to him what's happening. As he does to us. And so let me address those who, may, maybe that's where you are today. Maybe you are on the verge, maybe you are on the edge where you have built your life a certain way, you've expected certain things to happen, you thought you had a good balance of law and grace, you thought God was present, and now something happened, whether it's your marriage, or your job, or your house, or your relationship, whatever, your health, something happened, and you are right at that very point where you're realizing your worldview cannot hold, and you're saying, it's either I come up with a new worldview, or I have to walk away completely. I want to speak to you today. And those who have this new worldview that can hold, I want to encourage you. So let's see what the angel says to Joseph and how angel fills these gaps, these cracks, and puts the worldview back together and gives Joseph, in fact, a new understanding of reality that is much better and much stronger. Verses 20 through 23. This is the message that the angel gives to Joseph. Remember, Joseph is considering all these things. He's wrestling with these things. And then the angel comes, appears to him in a dream, and he says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Why? This is the law, law and grace. Go to Mary, take her. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now look at how this message, this gospel of Jesus, fills the cracks and fills and bridges those gaps in Joseph's worldview. Let's work through them again. Number one, the gap between expectations and experience. The angel explains that Mary's baby is from God and that he will come into the world to save the world. Joseph is supposed to name the child Jesus, which means God saves. And the Savior, this God in the flesh, Savior, this divine Messiah, will be born under these circumstances. He is coming into the uncertainty of life. 
where expectations do not match experience. Jesus is placing himself right into that gap between expectations and experience. So Joseph is saying, how come my life isn't the way I expected it to be? And God says, I'm sending Jesus right into your life the way it is. Now it's amazing to think that this is how the Savior of the world came into the world. Born under these conditions, where people are wondering where this baby is coming from. A lot of rumors are flying around. He's born into this kind of marriage, into this kind of a family. Family that has to flee the country because the king is trying to murder their son. And in fact, murders a bunch of kids in the process. They have to flee. They become refugees in Egypt. Staying away until the king dies so they can return back to Nazareth. Jesus experienced the loss of his father at some point in life. He knows what it feels like to lose a loved one. He experienced betrayal by his friends and rejection by his people. He was falsely accused and put to death in a brutal and scandalous way. Now get this. All of that happened to the man who lived a perfect life, kept all the rules perfectly, followed all of God's law. So if you are still under the impression that it's up to you how your life is going to go based on how well you keep the rules, please look at Jesus. He has kept all the rules. He has done everything right. What happened to him? His experience wouldn't match our expectations. So you see that the answer and the glue that keeps our experience and expectations together is the gospel, is Jesus. Where Jesus says, I'm coming right into this uncertainty. I'm coming right in the midst of these gaps. And I'm meeting you exactly where you are. Now secondly, this gap between us and God. This baby, the angel says, will also be called, according to this old prophecy, Emmanuel, which means God with us. So the answer to the question... Where is God when you're sitting on that hospital bed, when you're talking to the bank, when you're talking to your employer, when you're talking to your doctor, when you're talking to the judge? The answer to the question, where is God, is always God is here in Jesus. God is here because Jesus is here. Jesus is God with us. He's the mediator that brings us and God together. Because he is both human and God. Mark Jones, in his book, Knowing Christ, says, If Jesus were in all things only a man, he would be at an infinite distance from God, just as we are. In the same way, if Jesus were in all things only God, he would be at an infinite distance from us. As the mediator, however, he bridges the gap between the infinite God and the finite man. All that belongs to God, Jesus possesses. 
all that makes someone truly human, Jesus possesses. So when Joseph is wondering, where is God here? Where is God in all this mess? The angel is saying, God is going to be born to your wife as a baby. And you're going to be able to hold him. So next time you're asking, where is God? Look at your son. He's right here. He's in your family, in your dysfunction, in your life. Jesus is the only one who can fill that gap between humanity and God because he is both God and human. Jesus is God's definitive declaration that he is forever committed to us and united with us eternally. Listen to Matthew Henry, this this great commentator on Scripture. If you're going to get one commentary, get Matthew Henry. Behold, in this the deepest mystery and the richest mercy that ever was. By the light of nature, we see God as a God above us. By the light of the law, we see him as a God against us. But by the light of the gospel, we see him as Emmanuel, God with us in our own nature and which is more in our interest. Henry is saying that if we only had nature, creation, we would feel that God is above us. He's not personal. He's not connected with us. He's beautiful, but he's not connected with us. If we only had the law, God would always be against us because we cannot fulfill the law. And so he would be personal because he would keep us accountable, but he would not be beautiful, he would not be good. But in the gospel, and only in the gospel, do we have a God who is with us. Not just above us, not just against us, but he's with us. Eternally committed to us. He's with us in our nature, becoming one of us. And he's with us for our interest, for our benefit, always for our good. Do you see what God did in the incarnation of Christ? He is with us instead of apart from us. And he is for us instead of against us. Now when I was talking about this approach that many churches take and youth groups and small groups and Bible studies take when we talk about Do good things and God will bless you. Lead your life in this way and you will reap the blessings. One sociologist termed it, there's a term for that, that sometimes you would hear people refer to. It's moralistic therapeutic deism. Moralistic therapeutic deism. What that means is that we're teaching, and specifically he's talking about youth groups. Like I said, this is not the case here. But in many churches... The way we we teach teenagers, the way we teach kids, is we're telling them, God is to tell you what to do, and if you do it, he will bless you. And God is here to make you feel better. So if you have a problem, you go to God and he will make you feel better. But really, we're not talking about a person. You don't really have a relationship with him. He just tells you what to do and he makes you feel better like a counselor. And what that approach does, this moralistic therapeutic deism, and deism means this this impersonal God, that's what it means. What this approach does, it takes the law, and it takes nature. 
but it leaves the gospel out. So it tells you God is interested in what you do and he will reward you or punish you. It tells you that God is a beautiful being, that God is a majestic being from whom you can derive self-worth, for whom you can, you can feel better about yourself if you, if you gaze at him. That's nature. But it leaves the gospel out. It leaves the relationship. It leaves the commitment of God to us out. And what does God declare in the birth of his son? I am with you. I am forever with you. Not just against you in the law. Not just above you in nature. But I am very much with you in Christ through the gospel. As a word of warning... Let us be careful how we define the Christian faith to other people. Let us not set up false expectations. Let us not teach people that if they do certain things, God will inevitably do that. Because God doesn't promise those things. We do. God promises to be with you forever. God promises to bless you in the greatest possible way, which includes the uncertainty of life, which includes often your life falling apart and spinning out of control. So let's not set up these false expectations, especially for our children and for the teenagers. Let's teach them the gospel, that the core truth of Christianity is not our obedience. We should obey God. He deserves our obedience. The core of Christianity is not how we feel when we sing songs at worship. The core of Christianity is that God did something for us, that Jesus came to us so that God would forever be with us and be for us. Now there's the final gap, the final crack in the worldview that needs to be fixed. That's the crack between law and grace. When Joseph struggles how to respond to Mary, whether bring the full weight of the law on her or just let her go or maybe even just stay with her and absorb that that bad reputation that he would incur. The issue really was his response to sin. How do you respond to sin? How do you respond to somebody doing something wrong? Should we ignore justice and forgive the person? Many of us do that. We forgive the person everything. We completely submit to them and let them do whatever they want to do. Or should we ignore the person and enforce justice? Many of us break relationships because we want what's right. Here's what God does in Christ. The promise here is that Jesus will save his people from their sins. You see, Joseph's approach to sin was quite reasonable. He was a reasonable man. He was trying to find that middle ground. He's looking for balance, a sensible solution to Mary's adultery. But God has an utterly unreasonable, and by that I mean unexpected, unpredictable solution. A solution that could not have originated in a mind like Joseph's mind, or like my mind, or like your mind. Here it is. Here's the solution. Jesus fulfills the law on our behalf and extends grace to us. Who could come up with that? As much as engineers come up with great improvements to our lives, and we are deeply thankful for that, by the way, no engineer could devise this. It takes the mind of God to be able to say, how do we keep both justice and love together? 
How do I remain a God who punishes until the third generation and yet forgives until a thousandth generation? How do I do that? So this is what happened through Jesus. He obeyed the law in our place, did everything perfectly, thus giving us a perfect record of righteousness before God. So because he did it in our place, on our behalf, when we stand before God, we say, God, accept us on the basis of the perfect record of my Savior. He did everything right on my behalf. So accept me as if I did everything right, even though I didn't. More than that, Jesus took the punishment, the penalty, in our stead on our behalf, thus removing our guilt. So not only do we have the negative taken away, now we are given the positive righteousness from Him. So we are both perfect as Christ is perfect, and we are both innocent as Christ is innocent, because Christ did everything right, and He didn't do anything wrong, and whatever wrong we have done, He took the punishment for that on the cross. And then on the basis of all that He's done for us, this God-man who came as a baby, who lived a perfect life, who died a scandalous death, who rose again, who's coming again, this Savior extends grace to us sinners. So none of us, when we stand before God, try to balance law and grace. We just say, for Jesus' sake, accept us. He was perfect. He died for me. And he rose for me, and now I'm here. No balance. A complete fulfillment of the law by Jesus and an extension of an extraordinary grace to us sinners. Joseph's life changes because of Jesus. Now, he literally had Jesus as a baby, as a person who was growing in his household, right? We have Jesus spiritually as much as he did. And so for Joseph, because he had Jesus, he had to accept that his reputation was not going to be great because he stayed with Mary. He had to leave his home and disobey his king and flee to Egypt, to a heathen land that did not live by God's law. Joseph ended up living a life of grace in a relationship with Jesus. And that's what we are supposed to do. That crack between law and grace is healed, is fixed, because Jesus fills it. Now, do you see how Jesus, Emmanuel, God and man, restores Joseph's worldview, fills these gaps. This mystery of the incarnation allows Joseph to make sense of life again. He was just a reasonable man before, now a mystery coming to his life. And in fact, it strengthened his worldview. It gave him a new and a better, a stronger understanding of life. So now he can handle stuff like running away from his king that he used to obey. Now he can handle stuff like babies dying around and he's trying to protect Jesus, living as a refugee in Egypt, losing his reputation and people, people mocking him. All that stuff he can handle because his worldview is intact and is able to hold. G.K. Chesterton says this fascinating thing. He says, that we can understand everything by the help of what we do not understand. We can understand everything by the help of what we do not understand. What he means is this, to have a complete worldview, 
we need to put something mysterious right in the middle of it. And that mystery now allows us to understand everything else. So we cannot just be reasonable people. We need to be reasonable people on the basis of a mystery revealed to us. That changes your life. If you think Christianity is only reasonable, that's not complete. At its core, it has a mystery of Christ's incarnation, his life, his death, and his resurrection. I love what Joseph does in verses 24 and 25. That's his response. And you see that he's being both reasonable and he is deeply rooted in the mystery of the incarnation. This is his new worldview that now is going to hold. Verse 24, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until he had given until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. He responds in faith and obedience, doing exactly what God has commanded him to do, and yet he does all of that on the basis of the mystery revealed to him. So as we approach communion, this is exactly what I'm asking you to do this morning. Accept the mystery of the Incarnation and allow it to fill the gaps in your worldview. Behold, good news of great joy, God is with us in Christ. As you get that, that God is with us, which includes His life, which includes His death, includes His resurrection and His return. As you accept this mystery, construct a whole new worldview by faith. And only this worldview, this gospel-centered worldview, is able to fill the gaps between expectations and experience, between law and grace, and most importantly, between God and you. So if you are not with God, if you do not have Jesus, this is my call to you. Embrace Him now. Embrace Him today. Repent of the worldview that doesn't work. And come to Jesus and embrace the gospel that does make sense even to reasonable people because it's based on a mystery. If you are not a believer, I hope that you become one today. But I ask you to not come to the table. This is for believers. And if you are a believer, it doesn't matter if you're a member of this church, an attender, or this is your first time here. If you are a believer, you are absolutely welcome at the table of the Lord. And as you come, you come in faith, much like Joseph who woke up, and some of you are waking up right now because the service is changing and something new is happening. So you're like, okay, I better be alert now. So you woke up from sleep, and you go and you do what the Lord tells you to do. And so you take the body and you take the blood, and you're saying, I don't really understand how all of this works. But only if I accept this does the rest of my life makes sense. And so you come in faith and you pray that God would strengthen your faith and and fill the gaps in your worldview. As you come forward, we will be singing in celebration of what God has done. You're welcome to take communion right in front here and leave the cup in the little basket here. Or you can take it back to your seats if you need more time to reflect on the gospel, to meditate, to confess your sins perhaps, to repent. If you are unable to come forward 
an elder will bring communion to you. So if you're new here, just raise your hand so we know where you are. One of our elders will bring communion to you. If you are in the balcony, there are tables set up for you there so you can just move forward where you are and be able to take communion there. So let's pray together as we prepare to come to the Lord's table. Father, we praise you for who you are. We praise you that in you, both the most reasonable, orderly, and structured things come together with the most surprising, mysterious, and mystical solutions. And we embrace you for who you are. You're not a God who could be, who could be accepted by our intellect only. Our hearts need to, be, need to be engaged as well. So as we look at you, and specifically we look at Jesus, your Son who came to save us, we pray that it would make sense to our minds and that it would engage our hearts. So as we come to the table, we come in faith, knowing that God is with us, that in Jesus, my expectations and my experience can come together, that law and grace can come together, that we could, could be fully accepted with you through Christ. Lord, I pray that you would bring to our remembrance what Jesus has done. His birth, his perfect life, his suffering, his death, his resurrection, his ascension to continue to intercede for us and the promise of his return. Lord, we confess that often our understanding of reality, our understanding of life do not fit with the gospel. So we pray that you would correct it. Show us what needs to be changed, maybe just tweaked, maybe completely reconstructed in the way we see life. We pray for your Holy Spirit to do this work in us because he gives us faith, because he transforms us so that our minds and our hearts can understand and accept the gospel. The Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Let's do it together. 